This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. Hey, well, we are already recording. We've been, uh, we just spent the last couple of minutes just talking about our favorite parts from uh, The Crucible of Doubt. And um, so, you know, Lauren's shared a little bit about our podcast, but essentially, you know, the premise of the podcast is sharing stories of people who have left the church for whatever reason or had, you know, a severe faith crisis and then come back from it. And so, um, you know, we had, we created this little book club and actually Alba, she shared her story on the podcast a couple months ago. And she mentioned that one of the turning points for her was reading your book. And so oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so we all read the book in uh, the book club and we all just absolutely loved it. And so we invited Alba back to be on this episode with you. And um, yeah, we just, we're so excited to have you on. We just think the world of you and yeah. Um, So I have just a little bio here. Um, So Terrell has written and edited over 20 books I have a lot more to read. I'm super excited um, and has many more on the horizon. Um, some of his favorite include his collaborations with his wife, Fiona. Terrell has spent much of the last 20 years tracing the history and theology of the Latter-day Saints, but for most of his career, he taught romantic literature. Think more Shelley than Sparks. Um, whether it's hosting insightful podcasts on faith matters or speaking to saints uh, the world over at Intimate Firesides, Terrell's mission is to help everyone, no matter where they are in their journey of faith, come closer to Jesus Christ. So I love that so much. Um, nice intro, thanks. Yeah. So we have some questions for you. Um, I mean, you know, we'd love to just hear you kind of share a little bit about you and kind of what started what started this whole journey and um where it all began from you and if you're okay with just kind of sharing that and we can have some questions at the end that'd be awesome sure um <clears throat> i uh i fully expected that i would spend my life teaching and writing about uh early 19th century european literature romantic literature in particular and uh, I had only been teaching at the University of Richmond a few years when listening to a general conference uh, it was back in the would have been, I guess, the 90s. And uh, President Benson was speaking and he was quoting something that Joseph Smith said. And he said, it is our duty to concentrate all our influence to make popular that which is sound and good and unpopular that which is unsound. And I had grown up and uh, spent most of my early life and professional life in Virginia, part of the Bible belts. And we were in an area where there was, there were just kind of ferocious waves of anti-Mormonism that, that were, were common in my experience growing up and teaching. And uh, it's just seemed to me that in light of uh, those words that that President Benson quoted from Joseph Smith, I suddenly felt that there had to be something I could do as a scholar, as an academic, to address some of the misperceptions and misrepresentations uh, about the church. And so I, uh, I plunged into a project in the 1990s. It was my first book, and it was about representations of Mormonism in 19th century popular culture. And... Uh, it was a fascinating journey for me to uh, uncover uh, this really this really incredible history of ways in which clearly American people were suffering from a kind of anxiety of seduction, as I called it, about about this Mormon menace. And it led me into this a kind of search for the constants. What are the what would have been the factors all the way going back to eighteen thirty? That, that kind of fire the imagination in negative ways. And I gradually transitioned over the next, I guess, decade or so without really intending to, to be speaking more to Latter-day Saints who were struggling with their faith than 
those who are hostile to the church from a complete outsider perspective. And this, uh, this kind of focus sharpened during the Romney campaign, the first one back in 2008, and then again in 2012, as Mormons became more and more a subject of media interest. And so Sherry Dewitt Deseret asked my wife and I if we would write a book for a general audience uh, introducing the Latter-day Saint tradition. And so that's when we wrote The God Who Weeps. And that was back in 2012. And it was, it was very shortly after that that um, people in my own family um, began to suffer their own uh, faith journeys. Um, and um, just really kind of choppy waters in their own spiritual lives. And I wrote a letter to one of these individuals. And um, it was at about the same time that I was asked to give a fireside in Palo Alto to young adults. And it just seemed appropriate to share that letter that I had written with a, with a larger audience. And so I did, and it was called Letter to a Doubter. And uh, the letter kind of went viral and got picked up and copied and talked about and reproduced. And um, suddenly it seemed that there was, uh, there were a lot of um, chords I had struck that met with a, a, a positive reception, positive response. A lot of people I find are asking genuine questions and they just want their questions to be taken seriously. And I think that there was a paradigm shift that the church was starting to go through at that period of time where we started to decriminalize doubt, which I think is one of the healthiest developments that's taken place in the last 10 years or so. People like Elder Holland especially were at the forefront of giving talks that were sympathetic and respectful of those who ask real questions, genuine questions with genuine intent. And so... Uh, with Fiona's help, I expanded that letter into the book, Crucible of Doubt. And uh, that kind of launched us on um, a, just a whole series of opportunities to respond to requests, uh, really uh, throughout quite a large area. In fact, we've been to 20 countries as well as about 30 states in the United States giving firesides and doing Q&A sessions with uh, principally young adults, but just general audiences as well. And so I have just been incredibly um, grateful that I've had the opportunity to kind of combine or merge my academic interests in studying religion as a cultural phenomenon and, and writing about the history of the Latter-day Saint tradition and to merge that with what I hope is a kind of pastoral effort to engage people in faith-building ways. I was a young single adult in one of those uh, devotionals that you gave with Fiona, a fireside that you gave. Um, it was probably maybe 2017 in Arizona. And uh, it was wonderful. You, you were speaking about your book, The Christ Who Heals. Um, and it was beautiful. But that's something that was really meaningful to me because I had already read your book and I was going kind of in the middle of, of coming back and it was a, an important process. And so that was really, I think it's a, such an important group that you have spoken to so many different times because I think that's obviously a, a crossroads where a lot of people are making difficult decisions and you know really deciding who they're going to be and, and why and anyway I think that that's really important so thank you for that appreciate that thanks um so what is your your personal experience with um you know where did your testimony start hmm. um my family joined the church when I was young. Uh, I, I come from a mixed Methodist and Presbyterian background. My, I was baptized Presbyterian by my grandfather, who was a minister in the Presbyterian church. Uh, my parents converted, and uh, but it didn't stick initially. And so I wasn't really raised as an active Latter-day Saint. It wasn't until I was 16 years old, and we moved back to Virginia, and uh, I kind of discovered on my own uh, the, the church and uh, became enamored, I think, even at a young age of its theology, uh, which I have always thought is unusually uh, coherent and rational. Um, 
and uh, I I had I don't I don't often talk in public about my own personal faith journey, but I did have a a kind of near death experience back in 1992, uh, trying to save somebody who was drowning, and uh, it was a life changing experience for me in uh, insofar as it. It uh, it shook me to my core, some of the things that I experienced, and I, I found myself asking really hard questions of myself. What do I really know? How certain am I? How reasonable are my faith commitments? And so I really, I think I can date in a, in a, in a kind of concrete, specific way, um, a faith journey that consisted of very deliberately and self-consciously trying to construct a faithful foundation. And um, I think the most important insight that I came to in that process was a recognition of what's taught in section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And I, I think we don't uh, fully absorb the, the important teaching that is there when the spiritual gifts are being enumerated. And we are told that some is given to know that Jesus is the Christ. And so we have what I Fiona and I call this rhetoric of certainty in the church, right? Where we're used to this tradition of standing up the first Sunday and going to the podium and professing all the things that we know. And uh, I want to make clear that I believe that many people do have that gift. I think that, that it is possible to have a kind of spiritual certainty and confirmation of, of those things, but that isn't my gift. But the, the verse following indicates that to some is given to believe. And so I, I think when I came to recognize that faith is a choice, um, that I, I had a different, a different relationship to my faith instead of always questioning, well, how certain am I? Do I know? What does it mean to me? I, I realized that, that, that faith is like any act of love. It requires risk and it requires vulnerability and it requires a conscious, willful decision of, of commitment. And so I feel like I have very powerful, credible grounds for my faith. Um, I think, you know, everything from, you know, Book of Mo the Book of Mormon as a miraculous document and uh, whisperings of the spirit that I have felt time and again. Uh, so there are many sources of my faith, but ultimately it comes down to just deciding, yes, I'm going to make the decision to trust in Christ and in the goodness of his nature and of the reliability of, of the modern prophetic witness. I'm glad that you touched on that. I really appreciate it. You reminded me of something that Ashley and I were actually talking about last week. Um, I have, so I lived outside of the church from the age of 12 to 25. So I came back when I was 25 and I had some incredibly powerful spiritual experiences that to me are undeniable. Like, I feel like I am one of those people that knows that there's a God. I don't believe that there's a God because mm -hmm. of what I've experienced. I don't have that choice anymore that to choose if I believe in God. I, I really truly feel that way. And sometimes when I listen to these people who have had a faith crisis over the CES letter or something from church history. I feel like they kind of invalidate my, my faith because I haven't had to struggle with that. Like I can accept the fact that I don't, um, I don't have to make logic out of everything in this world because God is so much more than I will. I am right now. And I could never comprehend everything that he does. So I don't need to put down on paper and, and really make logical sense of every little thing that happened in church history. But I don't know. I, I think we worry sometimes that some people have that kind of faith like us. And then they're thinking like, well, should I go read the CES letter? Do I not have a mature mm -hmm. testimony because I haven't studied so much? Like, I don't know. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. No, I think that's a really good question because there certainly are some people in our audience who have objected to our emphasis on, you know, doubt as a crucible, as a necessary part of discipleship. And I, I think it's, a, it's necessary insofar as faith 
if we do have faith, that means we don't have certainty, right? Faith means that we have reasonable bases, but not compelling proof. Um, but I also think, right, the spirit bloweth like the wind where it listeth, right? And so some people have these experiences that give them a solid foundation. Many, many people do not. I think it's important that we make room in our church for all kinds of bases for testimony. And uh, so I, I guess what, you know, there are many, many audiences, there are many constituencies in the church, and no one person can speak to all of them. And so I feel that Fiona and I have had the opportunity uh, and the invitation to focus on one particular um, kind of, of member, and it's those who do find themselves wrestling and, and struggling. I also think it would be incredibly helpful if as a church, as a membership, we could make a distinction between faith and faithfulness. Um, and there's, there's good textual and historical reason to do so, as well as, I think, um, doctrinal reason to do so. You know, in the Old Testament, the emphasis is always on faithfulness. Abraham is faithful to the covenant, and those who are singled out by Paul as exemplars are faithful. Faithfulness describes a relationship, and it describes a kind of trust that we repose in Christ. Faith, as it develops as a New Testament concept, pertains more to our assent to a series of propositions. So, if you stand up, for example, and say, I know the Book of Mormon is true. Well, that's about faith. You're, you're asserting your assent to this fact or this claim. All right, you know, the, the prophet is, is the prophet or, you know, any number of propositions we can make that are about faith. And so the way I like to think of it is that faithfulness should be non-negotiable. We, sh we should hopefully arrive at a point where our, we're committed with both feet. Our commitment to Christ is non-negotiable. That's never called into question. But how we understand different precepts and principles of the gospel should be in a constant state of, de of development and evolution, right? Testimony should be organic, it seems to me, in that way. So I think it's perfectly uh, logical as well as desirable to hold those things in tension in our own souls, to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure translation means what I thought it meant. I'm not sure the scriptures are infallible in the ways that I thought they were infallible. I'm not, right? All of these things can be subject to negotiation, but none of that calls into question. I love Christ. I'm devoted and committed to him. And uh, so I think that's one way of embracing a wider kind of plurality of disciples and discipleship. Um, so you mentioned the letter that you wrote and that's kind of, you know, where this started. Um, so if you had, if you, what general advice would you have for, you know, a young adult or somebody that, you know, in today's world, there's TikTok and Instagram and, you know, everything online and people just very loudly sharing their opinions of why, they believe the church is wrong or the church, you know, all of the issues they believe that the church has and with church history and everything, it's very loud online. And our, you know, the younger generation is very much so exposed to it all the time. Um, what advice would you have for this generation if they're, you know, if you had to sum it up in a nutshell with what, what their first steps would be in dealing with this? Yeah. I, you know, um, it's, it, to me, it just seems that there, that it's just about a fundamental attitude that we take toward life. Um, are we going to be critics and cynics and skeptics, or are we going to be builders and questers? And, uh, you know, the reason I fell in love with my wife was because she loved what is beautiful. That was the, that was what, what united us. That was our common the kind of, kind of common thread in our courtship and, and, and marriage is we, we, we want to pursue what is beautiful. We want to fill our lives with beautiful art and uplifting literature and, and great thoughts. 
And uh, it seems to me that life is too short to spend any time reading anything that isn't faith building. And so it seems that we have, and it, it's incumbent upon us, it seems as moral agents to, to seek out those things that speak to us in beautiful ways. And, you know, it, it can be Harry Potter or it can be rock music or it can be through the medium of the scriptures. But, you know, when the Lord said, seek ye wisdom out of the best books, he's not talking about the scriptures. It's clear in the context that he's saying, in addition to the scriptures, you need to find these other sources of beauty and power and inspiration. And the, the problem with reading the CES letter is that you are making other people's questions yours. And it seems to me there's something profoundly inauthentic about that, you know? So that's why I'm not interested at all in engaging in debates or arguments or disputes uh, with people who, who have criticisms of the church. If you, if you come with your own question that has arisen authentically, then I'm happy to engage and to have a, a conversation. And I don't know if there's going to be a final exit interview at the end of this life. And I don't know what questions will be asked if there is. But it seems to me that, or at least the, the kind of question I'm trying to prepare for is uh, if we stand be, before the, the great divine or his representative, the, the question that would matter most, it seems to me, is what did you build? What, what did you build with your life? Did you build faith and hope and beauty and friendship and relationality? Or did you build doubt and skepticism and, and adversarialism? And, and so I guess that's what I'd say is if you are seeking the light, then you're going to be okay. Um, I just have confidence that you're going to be okay. Um, but, but just make that your pursuit and, and find your own questions. That's so good. I love that so much. I, I feel like what really kickstarted me wanting to start this podcast was, um, there was this thing going around on Instagram and it was submit your anonymous questions to people. And this kind of opened up this whole conversation about people just sharing why they were leaving the church. And it just was all the comments and everything in it. It, it gave me cause to pause and say, you know, what, well, that question, that actually is pretty valid. And it kind of like caused some questions inside me that kind of pushed me into my own exploration of answers. And I found that throughout that little, you know, thing that I went through there for a minute, I, I, it, it pushed me into this research phase where I was looking for answers to these questions that I started to have that were triggered by th these things I was seeing online. And, um, I, I asked heavenly father to help me to work through this and to, um, provide me with answers that made sense. And, um, and I feel grateful that I went through that little journey that I did. And, um, and one of the quotes in your book is that there's only a flower that can bloom in the, the desert of doubt. And I, I just thought that was so profound. And I will remember that quote for the rest of my life because it just was so beautiful. And um, anyway, so, well, uh, do we, do you guys want to kick off with some of the questions that we have? Um, I think Alba, you're up for a question reading. Sure, definitely. Uh, so we had, like she, like Ashley mentioned, we, we did a kind of a little, um, book club. And so some people at the end kind of shared some of their favorite parts of the book. And so we wanted to get some insight from you. What are, you know, you wrote a lot of really meaningful passages, but we wanted to know, you know, either in the reading, in the writing process or with you and Fiona and, and your learning, what were, uh, some of your favorite parts of the book? Um, I, I guess uh, it was the epilogue, <laughs> and it was only as I was finishing the book that I came upon this this great short story of uh, Miguel de Unamuno, 
right? And it was uh, it was about um, about this Catholic priest who lives with this right terrible burden of doubt his whole life, and he has to hide this from his flock because he feels so unworthy as a priest if he himself can't feel the the certainty that he is trying to inculcate in his flock. And uh, what's so beautiful and poignant about the story is he is survived by a close friend who recognizes that faith is more manifest in the kind of life we lead than what we knowingly profess. And so I think what that means to me is that is that we we live forth our faith. And the way we articulate that, the way we conceptualize that, might be in an accurate reading. If, especially if, as I said, we're, we're defining faith in terms of commitment and in terms of loyalty and in terms of relationship. And, uh, you know, I've always been moved by the fact that in John chapter 6, when we, when we see the first defections from the Savior, um, the language that is used in the King James translation, which is an accurate rendering of the Greek, is after that day, they many walked no more with him. And I think it's sad that we have come to think of our testimonies primarily in terms of an institutional affiliation. And so I think that's part of what I was trying to suggest through this book is that is that all aspects of our faith and testimony should be subordinate to that commitment to walk with other saints following Christ. And if we are doing that, then it seems to me that many times the questions that puzzle us, the doubts that we have, aren't as relevant and as pertinent in the end to what it means to be a disciple. Um, and so I guess that was that was a conclusion I came to only only as I was finishing up the manuscript. Well, and one point that you made was that uh, maybe it's not so much about the messenger as it is the message. And I love that. Yeah, yeah, you are all too young to have ever seen the great movie uh, Amadeus, right? Anybody seen that in this audience? But it's- I it's, did in my, uh, in my orchestra class. Okay, so we watched it. <laughs> And that's right. It's a great movie. It's a little dated now, right? But it's about this guy Salieri, right? Who's just a second-rate musician, and he's a contemporary of Mozart's. And Mozart is this rakish, lustful, crude, vulgar musician who's brilliant. And Salieri just can't understand why would God work through him? <laughs> How can he be a vessel of beauty when he, right? And uh, so I, I think that, you know, the lesson there was profound. It's that uh, it's about the message. It's not about the messenger because we are all broken, right? Vessels. We're all wounded and we're all, we're all weak. I remember my son uh, read Rough Stone Rolling when he was on his mission. And he wrote me and he said, that's the most faith-promoting book I've ever read in my life. Because when I saw what God could do through a man as imperfect as Joseph Smith with his flaws, I thought, well, maybe there's hope for me too. So wow. I think that's the lesson that we should take. That's awesome. Um, Lauren, I'm going to let you go next because I kind of already asked my, my okay. question. Ours is from a listener, so... Um, it says, I am a youth Sunday school teacher. Youth today spend their time in algorithmic content feeds that eventually expose them to compelling arguments against the church. I worry that in the current church system, doubting youth ask for bread but receive a stone. How can those of us in the service of the youth best help those in this situation, especially when we don't have answers ourselves? I, I think uh, the first resource in our arsenal should be the gospel topics essays and surveys have shown that an astonishing uh, percentage of members of the church still aren't even aware uh, of of those i was a participant in that project with 
what's it been now? I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 years where the church decided to address head on 12 of the most challenging vexing issues in institutional history and write honest uh, essays about those topics from the priesthood ban to Joseph Smith's practice of polyandry to, um, well, there are, I think there are 12 topics in all heavenly mother. What do we really know and what don't we know about, about polygamy? And, and so these are church sponsored, church endorsed essays where there is a very honest approach together with resources. So we should know those first of all, and know that the that the church has officially sponsored, right? Has kind of, has officially endorsed uh, an approach where we recognize these tough questions and issues, and we we address them. I think it helps also to to know that this the Joseph Smith Papers Project. It's it's an academic project, yes, but what that represents is a, is the first time in the church's history where. We have said as an institution, we are going to present to the world every single word that Joseph Smith ever spoke, wrote, or dictated. And we're not going to make excuses. We're not going to censor. We're not going to edit. And so I think I think uh, the third thing I would suggest is every church educator has to read Elder Ballard's 2016 address to the CES educators. Uh, it wasn't a general conference talk, so it wasn't widely distributed, but this was an address to institute and seminary teachers throughout the world in 2016, Elder Ballard, who's now right the acting uh, president of the quorum. In that talk, these are some of the things he said. He said, teachers, a testimony is not an answer to a question. That's an astonishing thing for an apostle to say, right? In other words, he's saying, if a student asks you a question, don't evade it by saying, well, I'll bear you my testimony address the question. And then he said, if you don't know the answer to the question, then go to somebody who does. Go to a church historian or a scholar who does know the answer to that question. He also said, we have failed uh, as a church to adequately prepare our young people for the challenges and the kinds of questions that are being asked today. So it's just a remarkably refreshing, honest talk where he's saying, we, we need to, to to honor these questions, we need to validate them, and we need to engage them and and try to either become qualified to answer the questions or refer them to people who can. So I think that's the best place to start. Love that. Alba, you're, you're next with the next question. Uh, I guess it's kind of similar to this one about uh, teachers teaching the youth, but I think in many podcast episodes and in my personal experience, one of the things that's most common is that people ask about how to help a family member, a family member or a close friend who is struggling, struggling with, you know, questions or doubts or, you know, feelings of, of betrayal and, and frustration at the church as they, as they kind of struggle through this faith journey. So I guess, uh, what would you say to those who want to help someone else that are wondering what to say or what to do? Yeah. Well, I, I guess in, that is a kind of question that is tangential to the, the one I just answered, because I guess, first of all, we should, we should know, right, what sources we can trust and, and, and where we can refer these people. But I, I think it's also important that we recognize that we, or that we, we practice discernment. Um, I have, right, as most people in the church, I have lots of relatives uh, who have become hostile to the church who have left the church. Um, at various points in their journeys, they have wanted to talk to me about matters of church history or doctrine. And the first thing that I always try to assess is, are they asking genuine questions? Do, do they want to express anger and bitterness? Or do they want to find resolution and peace? And so I, it seems to me that the very, very first thing we have to do is ascertain what is the nature of the question. And if it's just disputatious and contentious, then we just need to find ways to support and love and be friends, but without engaging um, in, in these ways, because it, it just, it isn't productive. Um, I remember uh, a remarkable experience. It was one of the very, very, very kind of beginning of, of Fiona's in my work in, in this area. And a mission president had authorized a sister missionary to come and, and talk to me because she had made the decision to leave the church uh, 
in the next week when she was she was going to be released from her mission and she was going to leave the church. So she had a whole list of questions. And we spent a couple of hours, you know, we're going through these questions. It's like kind of the CES type questions. And then I remember she asked one question and suddenly it just kind of clicked in my mind. And I said, I said, sister, why, why does that question matter to you? And suddenly there was this silence. And then she, she said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and that was the moment when she realized she was just parroting these other questions. Now, some people have taken this story that I've, I tell out of context and said, oh, he's saying truth does. No, I'm not saying truth doesn't matter. But it's kind of like somebody coming to me and saying, I learned that Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. He was born in Nazareth. Well, my question would be, why does that matter? And I would hope that most disciples would say, I guess it doesn't really matter. Now, if somebody said, I learned that, jo that Jesus didn't really resurrect from the dead, that matters, <laughs> right? So I, we need to learn to discern what questions are meaningful and what questions aren't. So in this case, I, I, if I remember correctly, the question was about Joseph Smith and the Kirtland Bank failure. Well, why does that matter? Um, prophets aren't gifted with economic insight and wisdom that allows them to make right infallible economic or financial decisions. And so I think that's kind of what came out of that was, oh yeah, I guess uh, unless I'm presuming that a prophet is perfect and omniscient, then that that doesn't matter. And so, you know, in that case, that that ended up being a kind of breakthrough. Yeah, when I recorded my episode, I talked to Ashley about something similar where there was a talk by Lawrence Corbridge that I love called Stand Forever. And he talks about that, about primary questions and secondary questions. And he mm -hmm. says the same thing where, you know, where you answer the primary questions, like the ones that actually matter Did Christ resurrect. I mean, is that is that something that you can actually, you know, know about, you know, versus the unlimited amount of questions of things that that really don't matter and don't affect, you know, anything yeah, eternally yeah, or, yeah. or something really of matters of the soul. Yeah. In my own faith journey, the, the, the only question, when the dust settles, the only question that really arises to the forefront in my mind is, does the restoration make God present to me? Do I, do I see God's hand in evidence, in the good that the church does, in the good that the gospel accomplishes in the lives of individuals, and in the access that it gives me to the gifts of the spirit and to the, the beauties and of, of the truths of eternity. Well, then all the rest is just secondary to that, right? It's beautiful, thank you. Mine's kind of like a closing question. So um, we're just wondering if you have any book recommendations for people that are struggling um, with church history or CS letter stuff, or even just like your favorite faith promoting books? That's a pretty broad question. There are- well, We just need more for the book club, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, both my wife, Fiona and I have as our very favorite devotional book, uh, The Showings of Julian of Norwich. And uh, she was a 14th century nun who had a series of visions and she meditated on them as an anchorite, meaning in a kind of walled up cell for 20 years before she had the inspiration to write in what I think uh, is the most powerful witness ever given to the love of God. And that spoke to us in a powerful way. It doesn't, might not speak to everybody, but um, that's, that's our personal favorite uh, book of devotion. Um, if you want something more LDS themed in particular, um, I, I go back to the, the, bo the books of Neil A. Maxwell. I think he was one of the most gifted pastoral speakers and writers in our tradition. I, I haven't seen his equal sense. Um, we both love the sermons of George MacDonald. Those are easy to find in collected versions. He was a Congregationalist minister of the 19th century uh, who 
speaks in a spirit that most Latter-day Saints will feel is familiar and beautiful. Um, is that enough to start with, just those couple? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, we have we have a few other questions. Should we go with our other? They're kind of deep questions, and actually they're submitted by my cousin in particular, who he had these deep questions to ask you. So uh, if you're okay with a couple more questions, um, sure. we'd love to ask them. Um, so, and just side note, my cousin is one of the, he's one of the just strongest kids ever. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think these questions were pretty deep, but he said, um, the scriptures contain many examples of prophets publicly conversing with enemies of the church, defending the faith and resolving doubts. These stories are especially frequent in times where an antagonists are drawing people away from the church. If there were ever a time where these ancient stories are repeating, it is now. In your opinion, why don't you see this type of public interaction with antagonists from modern prophets? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that cultural values shift and um, cultural frameworks that ascribe different meaning and value to different kinds of rhetoric. And, uh, you know, if, if you were to go back in time to the first presidential campaigns in American history between oh, like John Adams and, and Jefferson, most Americans would be stunned by the level of acrimony and, and, and nastiness. But at that time, it, it, it didn't verge on civil war. It was just part of the free-for-all give and take of you know, this, this, bird, this new democratic experiment. I think what's happened is that in, in, the, in, in the present moment, we have become so polarized in ways that are really um, detrimental to any kind of public good. Uh, you know, people like uh, like Matt Holland, who's now a 70, right? Um, he's he he wrote a book on. Uh, oh, my gosh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's the, the thesis of his book is that American democracy is predicated on the assumption that we are going to interact in goodwill, that we will work together in a common kind of feeling of, of shared charity uh, in spite of political and policy differences. We no longer have that confidence in the inherent goodness of our fellow man in American society. And so I think it would be detrimental to the, to the, to the gospel, to the cause of the church, and to the cause of public unity for the brethren to today engage in that same kind of spirited um, um, uh, response to, to criticism. And I think that that shift began you know, midway through the 20th century, I remember the 1970s, there was a very important talk given at General Conference called No Time for Contention. And that was a kind of official, right, church pronouncement that we are not going to engage in, in debate or acrimonious contestation. Um, uh, I, I just, this week was reading a statement by... Um, Austin Fair, Austin Fair, a great Anglican theologian, who said uh, that the the most effective response to critiques of the gospel is the holiness with which we live our lives, and I I think that's always been the case. I love that response because Lauren and I have had quite the experience knowing what to do with the comments in the comment section of our, our videos and our posts, because it's interesting, especially on TikTok. I feel like TikTok is really a place where people just go wild with, you know, their comments. And I don't know how familiar you are with TikTok, but uh, I don't even know how to get on TikTok. Okay. So. <laughs> well, I actually didn't either until uh, I started the podcast, but uh Lauren and I were just had this experience of, well, do we defend? Do we you know, how do we engage with these people that are coming to our page to give us all of their, their feedback and their, uh, you know, their thoughts on the church and all the things. And uh, at first we were, we were responding and we were defending and we yeah. were sticking up for what we thought was right. And then 
it just kind of went down. It, there was really no winning. I'll, I'll say that there isn't, yeah. you know, there's no real reasoning. There's no real, um, there's not nothing positive that's coming from it. It's just a back and forth almost argument. And, um, but one thing that you mentioned earlier that kind of reminded me of this thought is that people can't argue your personal experiences. They can't say that, you know, that didn't happen. And, you know, each of us on this, on this episode right now, I'll have our own experiences of experiencing a change of heart and a softened heart and coming back after a time of trouble. And that you know, experience cannot be invalidated by somebody else. You can't really argue with that. And so, um, that's something that I, I really, I don't know. That's just something that really hit home. No, 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 that's, that's true. Yeah. My most recent book, um, came out a few weeks ago, I think it's called faith and intellect. And one of the main, I I just bought that. (laughs) And, And one of the, one of the main points that I try to make there is that rationality is one avenue to truth, but so is instinct, so is intuition, so is conscience, so is an aesthetic sense. And so most people who engage in acrimonious debate, they limit themselves to one very narrow kind of epistemology, one very narrow limiting way of thinking about truth. So we're speaking different languages often. Experience is its own language. Yeah. And I, it's interesting that you say that because one thing that Alba mentioned in her episode was that, um, a lot of times the, you know, the debate or, uh, the, the thing that she was being told was that you can't trust your feelings. Your feelings are not something that you can rely on. And, um, you know, it's just interesting because, you know, your message is that, you know, we need to surround ourselves with things that are beautiful and things that, you know, feel good and true and are, you know, so anyway, I just, I really, I, I feel like that kind of is a answer to two questions there. (laughs) So I just love that so much. Um, okay. Another question that he had was kind of about, um, you know, personal revelation versus revelation from church leaders. And, um, you know, when our, when our own personal revelation is out of alignment with, um, what the church teaches and how you would suggest maybe going about reconciling that. Uh, yeah. And I, I'll just, my response will just be one very simple anecdote. Uh, President Oaks was in California giving a fireside to young adults, and um, this this anecdote is actually in print, so it's it's not just apocryphal. And uh, a young couple came up to him after the fireside and said, "We hear what you're saying. We know you're an apostle, but we prayed about it and we're just convinced that your counsel just doesn't apply to us." And uh, I just love his response without missing a beat. He just said, "My calling as an apostle is to give counsel." your responsibility as an individual is to decide how that applies to you in your life. The end. I <laughs> so, love that. So I, yeah, I just think that was a very powerful teaching uh, moment. Yep. Yep. And I believe there's something else in the crucible of doubt uh, that mentions, I, I believe it was elder Oaks or president Oaks that said um, that, yeah, that is their, their responsibility is to give counsel for the general population of the church um, and I can actually, I'll quote that when we post this episode, I'll, I'll post that quote because it was really good. Um, and I think and maybe you're going to ask this question, but I'm, I'm trying to remember. It seems that I think in one of your communications, the question was raised about the, the, the priesthood ban. Yeah. And, yep. and, and, and what if we do feel, uh, strongly at odds with, uh, a church position or teaching? And there again, I think my my response to that is very simple and and equivocal, and that is we never have the authority or the right to publicly challenge. We can harbor private doubts and reservations and, and discomfort, but because we espouse the principle of priesthood keys, 
and a, a hierarchy of priesthood authority and keys, we there just isn't a place in our church for loyal dissent or, because we're not a democracy. And so it just, it doesn't make sense. It's not efficacious and it serves nobody's interests to publicly undermine or, or oppose those teachings. Love that. Um, one thing that I would, go ahead. Sorry, one thing that I would add also that we have just seen um, the elder Renlin, I believe just gave a, a beautiful talk about that, about the way that you receive revelation within a certain framework and how a lot of times I think it's similar to what's taught in the crucible of doubt in the beginning, where sometimes like your initial assumption might be incorrect. And so a lot of times when you start building upon this incorrect initial foundation, then, you know, things don't make sense and, and it could easily crumble. So I think that's something to look at as well is that a lot of times I think with questions and things that people feel are sometimes one-off situations, this one person said this in one situation and this contradicts this and, and people can get into a lot of that within themselves or with what right. other leaders have taught. But I think that is a really powerful message that he taught about how the spirit and in general, God operates like within certain frameworks and things that are very organized and very orderly And that when we can look at it from that lens and question our kind of our initial assumptions and our foundations of, of beliefs and those things generally lead to more clarity, I think. Yeah. Um, so we've got one more question for you and it's a doozy. So um, he says many concerns about the church are examined by church adjacent organizations like FAIR, the Maxwell Institute and authors such as yourself. I love these resources, but I also recognize that they don't match the weight of what is revealed by prophets and apostles. I get the nagging feeling that for certain issues, such as the book of Abraham, uh, what Terrell Givens will write tomes about, the prophet won't touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Do you believe that you're writing supplements a de de deficit in prophetic revelation on certain issues? I don't think it supplements a deficit. I see it as an entirely different kind of uh, area of concern and activity. I think if we were Catholics, we would have been versed in a vocabulary that makes all of this a lot clearer and simpler, right? There is dogma, there is doctrine, there are teachings, and there is theology. And each one of those diff is different. Dogma is what you have to believe to be an Orthodox member. Doctrine is what you are, are has official uh, authority and, and, and standing. Teachings is what you may hear in irregular or not always consistent ways. Theology is sustained intellectual reflection on doctrine and, and dogma and teachings. And so as somebody who is trained in humanistic approaches to culture, I engage in sustained reflection. How do these things match up or how, do they, how are they related to different theological or cultural or philosophical positions in the past? What are some of the implicit assumptions and implications and consequences? So it's not my job and I would never presume to declare doctrine, um, but I think that uh, there is a place, Joseph Smith himself said, there's no activity to which we can devote ourselves that is more important than theology. What we call the lectures on faith were originally called the lectures on theology. Um, so, there was a time when it had higher standing in church culture than it than it does today. And there was a period in the 1970s and 80s where some of the brethren were, were hostile to the enterprise of theology and speculative theology. Um, I don't sense that's the case today as long as people don't presume to, to speculate and fill in gaps mm. or, or claim authority or imply authority for, for what they're saying. But um you know, the Maxwell Institute, for example, is a different organization than the Religious Education Department at BYU. The Religious Education Department has the task of teaching the doctrines of the church. The Maxwell Institute is a group of professional scholars and academics who are engaged in the project of exploring and explicating and, and, and situating and contextualizing and doing the work of theology. I will say that reading your book, it was like these puzzle pieces that just fell into place for me. And um, I mentioned uh, to Alba and Lauren earlier that, you know, one of the questions that kind of floated around in my mind was why, if the church is the true church on the earth, why it's such a small population. 
And um, I would love if you could give kind of just your thoughts on that for our listeners, um, because it was so beautifully responded to in the book. And I just, it, it totally answered that for me and just made me feel like it was not anything that was concerning to me anymore after hearing your response. So, well, maybe you should paraphrase what I said in the book, because I have no recollection whatsoever of what I said (laughs) on that question. Well, um, basically, I I mean, I know what I would go ahead. Well, you go ahead. You tell me what you, what you would say. All right. Well, what I would, what I would say today is that there is an increasing recognition. I think I'm hearing an increasing focus on the part of the brethren on the multiple roles that inspired people have to constitute Zion and that we are a part of this larger international, interreligious, intercultural enterprise of building community. And we have particular tasks that nobody else does. The temple, temple keys, the temple rituals uh, and sealing ordinances, those can't be replicated or substituted anywhere. And then the second most important thing is I think only only the Latter-day Saint theology gives a coherent narrative of human origins, purpose, and futures. Um, And so we tell the story in a way that makes better sense of the human predicament. And, uh, you know, if it takes a millennium to do all of the the ordinances and saving rights that have to be done for the, the world's teeming billions, that's fine. Uh, we don't need millions and millions of people as long as we have the keys and the right story. Yeah, so I'm glad that you answered that, not me, because you're just, you know, I, I try to share with my husband what I learned from your book. And I'm like, it's just so poetic in the book. It's so eloquent and just it's so beautiful. And I just when I say it, it doesn't sound the same. So I'm glad that you explained that. But yeah, what what I heard in the book was just that there are other righteous people. And I love that you just said that, that, you know, we're, we're doing a piece of what needs to be done essentially. And I I just, it really makes so much sense to me. And I just appreciate how you tackled these questions in the book. And, um, anybody that's listening, the book is incredible and anything that you guys release in the future, I am your first purchase. (laughs) So, um, Thank you. Do you, are there any other, any last minute thoughts that you would like to share before we wrap up? Um, no, uh, just, um, you know, I was, I was asked the question recently in a press interview, do you think that Joseph Smith was an intellectual? And uh, another person that kind of was in the conversation, didn't like that term applied to Joseph Smith. He said, no, Joseph was a prophet. <laughs> yes, he was a prophet. But when I say he was intellectual, what I mean is I admire the adventuresomeness of his mind. I admire the limitless curiosity. I admire the fact that for Joseph Smith, no question was out of bounds. And so he got answers nobody had ever gotten because he asked questions nobody had ever been willing to ask. And uh, so I just, I wish more of us could have that perception of the gospel as this field of exciting exploration, questioning, journeying, uh, discovery, um, and, uh, and don't want everything. Don't be the kind of person who wants closure, completeness, everything tied up. Um, we live in an organic unfolding universe and uh, I don't I don't think God fully knows the future because the future doesn't exist. He knows everything that that is. And I think we are co-participants in creating this magnificent unfolding cosmos and uh, just be excited about that. I love that. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us. You are just incredible and I'm telling you we are all in your fan club. So (laughs) we just think you and Fiona are amazing. And it is such an honor for us to be able to have you on our podcast. And we just think the world of you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for the good questions. Yes.
Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, There's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.